Welcome back to Chaos. In the last three lectures, we've been focusing on the unpredictable side of chaos. But chaos is yang as well as yin, order as well as randomness. This lecture describes a way to visualize an amazing kind of order inherent in chaos. The resulting image is known as a strange attractor. Just as a circle is the shape that we would associate with periodicity, something repeating over and over, you think of a sort of coming back on itself, forming a circle. Well, a strange attractor is the natural shape of chaos. It's strange because its geometry is strange. It's infinitely complex. And it's an attractor because the system that it describes is always drawn towards the behavior that it represents, as if attracted to it. The existence of strange attractors is tremendously encouraging to scientists because by revealing the unexpected order within chaos, strange attractors offer hope that this sort of seeming chaos might be partially predictable and controllable. We'll see in subsequent lectures towards the end of the course some examples of how scientists have used the order in chaos revealed through strange attractors to control chaos in, in cardiac arrhythmias and also in lasers that have gone into fitful pulsations and so on. So let's see what strange attractors are, how they were discovered, and why they matter. We'll pick up with the hero of lectures five and six, the meteorologist Ed Lorentz of MIT. Remember our story, having uncovered the butterfly effect in his artificial weather model, Lorenz next sought the mathematical essence of chaos. Could chaos arise in simpler systems? Well, as he thought about it, he consulted with some colleagues, and a colleague told him, maybe, Ed, you ought to think about convection. Convection, of course, was familiar to Lorenz. It's a, a rotating pattern of flow that sets in for instance, if you heat a fluid, like air or water, you heat it from above. So think of the sun beating down on the earth. The, the uh, pattern of convection sets in when the hot air near the earth's surface starts to rise because it's lighter. And then as it rises, eventually it gets cooled off, and then it gets denser and starts to sink again. So you, you have these rotating patterns of, of air moving around. Those are convection cells. You could also see this heating water on the stove. So convection was the idea. Let's look into that. Now, I won't be showing you any convection demonstrations, but I will show you now really all the phenomena of interest captured by an analog model of the convection cell. It's a tabletop water wheel built just for this purpose as an, an analog of what Lorenz found. It's a tabletop water wheel that was built by one of Lorenz's colleagues at MIT, a professor named Willem Malkus. When I was a professor at MIT in the early 1990s, I loved this Malkus water wheel, and I used to show it really every chance I got to my chaos classes there. In fact, I, I loved it so much that after I moved to Cornell, I thought, I've got to have a videotape of that wheel just to show again. And so I made a pretty amateurish video of it, and I'll be showing you that in a minute. But first, let me try to orient you as to what you'll be seeing. Here's a schematic of the water wheel. The way it works is water is being pumped up through a kind of manifold, like in a car, 
and then sprayed out through many little nozzles in a sort of perforated hose into the water wheel structure, which is this whole structure sitting on the tabletop. I'm showing you a side view here. The confusing thing about the water wheel is that don't picture a big bucket. Picture a structure which has a thin rim around it, and the rim is partitioned into many little chambers, vertical chambers, thin slots, and the water is going to flow into those slots, effectively like a one-dimensional group of slots around the rim. Now, the water flows in steadily at the top of the water wheel, as shown here. This is going to be the counterpart of the heat that's driving convection in the atmosphere. In other words, by pouring in the water at the top of the water wheel, we'll make it top-heavy and tend to make it want to turn. Now, this water wheel is different from a regular water wheel that you would see out, out somewhere on a farm or something. In a regular water wheel, the water is added at the side to make the wheel turn in one direction. Here, the water is added at the top so that the wheel can spin equally well in either direction. There's a symmetry to the way this is set up. The water enters these thin chambers around the rim and then drains out through the bottom of each of those chambers, which has a little hole in it. And then it all collects in the bottom of the structure where it gets pumped back up eventually through the manifold to be poured back in. So it's a recirculating system, a self-contained device. Very elegant. It doesn't spill any water on the table when you're doing the demonstration. Even I was able to use it successfully. Now, there's a way that we can manipulate the system that's very important, which is we can adjust the amount of friction by turning a brake. The brake is shown here. It's just an ordinary brake. Puts a strong viscosity on the wheel as it tries to turn. And so by adjusting the brake, we can make the wheel behave in very different ways. For instance, when the brake is set to be pretty tight, the wheel settles into a uniform rotation. I'm going to show you that now in the video. So I've given the wheel a little initial push, and notice that there's some green, that is, water that's been colored green with food coloring. The water is coming in, and this wheel is just spinning steadily in one direction. You can see different amounts of water in the different chambers. But nothing will change over time, really. This is in a nice, steady rotation. That's the attractor for this system with the brake set the way it was. Just a simple, steady rotation in one direction. I could have set it to rotating in the other direction. That would have been fine, too, by symmetry. It has two symmetrical rotations in either direction. On the other hand, suppose we loosen the brake. If the brake is loose, then the wheel has a totally different kind of behavior. It rocks back and forth periodically, sort of like a pendulum. Let me show you what that looks like. Change the setting on the brake. Water is filling in the chambers, and now it starts turning in one direction. It goes twice in that direction. Let's see, now a third time. So it hasn't yet settled onto its attractor. In fact, it just seems to keep going in one direction. Now it's reversed. And at this point, it's pretty close to its long-term attracting behavior, and I think it will just keep rocking back and forth. If we set the brake in an intermediate amount of tightness, then we can get the wheel to show chaos. That is, it will rotate one way and then the other, but it will reverse its direction erratically and unpredictably. Watch what that looks like. 
Now keep track of which way it's turning and then ask how many times does it turn in that direction? All right, so it's reversed. Reversed, keeps going in that direction. It's made two turns that way, a third. Now back and so on. If you keep watching, you'll see that it makes a kind of unpredictable number of turns. It may be two, three, four in one direction, then two, three, four, five, or whatever in the other direction. That's what chaos looks like. Now this water wheel is a perfect mechanical analog of Lorenz's convection model. They do all the same things, and they're chaotic in the same ways. That's what I mean by a mechanical analog. Dynamically, they're the same. So we can use this water wheel to get an intuitive feel for what Lorenz saw in his convection simulations. Now let's go back to Lorenz and his convection model. Hoping to find order in the chaos somehow, just sensing it might be there, Lorenz sought to visualize the motion of his system. Now you would, you know, if you were given this job of visualizing motion, well, you would probably think to make an ordinary graph. You would graph some variable versus time. You could do that. You could graph the spin rate versus time, let's say. And if you do, you'll find nothing very revealing, just some complicated wiggle corresponding to the chaotic motion. So Lorenz tried something else. He made brilliant use of Poincaré's notion of state space, which we discussed in lecture four. Let's remember what a state means. A state is the amount of information I need to give you to allow you to predict the future of a system using the laws of motion. Or to put it another way, it's the amount of, the number of variables, the collection of variables I need to give you to say what a system will do in the next instant. And then instant by instant, I can predict forward all the way into the future. So for Lorenz's convection model, it turns out that the state is described by just three numbers, three variables. Same true for the water wheel analog. For the water wheel, those three variables can be thought of roughly as being how fast it's spinning, so its spin rate, it's the gravitational torque on the wheel tending to turn it in one direction or the other, that torque being caused by the way the water is distributed around the rim of the wheel. So we've got spin rate, we've got torque, and finally, a measure of the top heaviness of the wheel. How much of the water is sort of near the top of the wheel, making it tippy, like an inverted pendulum, and how much of the water is to the side or to the bottom of the wheel. So some kind of ill-defined thing that I'll be calling top heaviness. It turns out these details are not important. You could do just as well by thinking of these as three variables, x, y, z, with no particular meaning. But if you want the physical picture, it's, it's like what I just said. But what's really important here is that the state space has three dimensions, x, y, z, those three axes, one dimension for each variable. And that's wonderful because our human minds can visualize three dimensions. Remember that Lorenz's earlier model of the weather, his artificial weather model, had 12 state variables, and so there would be no hope of picturing it in this way. Well, using computer simulation, we can graph the behavior of Lorenz's system as it moves through its state space from state to state, sorry, state to state, sort of like a comet sailing through real space, except that this is an abstract point sailing through the abstract state space. The simulation I'm about to show you will possibly confuse you for a second until you get oriented. You're going to see three pictures at the same time. 
The first is just an animation of the, the rotating convection cell or water wheel. And that'll just be shown schematically as a dot moving around, either just rotating or maybe rocking back and forth or alternating direction chaotically. So keep your eye on that dot. That'll give you a physical picture of what's happening. Then there's the usual representation of a time series, a graph of, say, the spin rate versus time. And you'll see a complicated wiggle. The third is the good way of looking at things, the state space way of looking at things. You'll see a trajectory moving around in state space. Actually, not the whole state space, which is three-dimensional, just two of the axes that we'll pick out sort of projecting the three-dimensional state space onto a two-dimensional plane so we can see it better. But again, focus on the state space version of what you're seeing so that you can try to understand what this abstract comet moving around in there, the trajectory, what does that correspond to in terms of the real motion of the water wheel? Let's start simply, because this takes some practice. So let's suppose that we're in the simplest case where the water wheel is going to just settle into a uniform rotation in one direction at constant speed. I'll start the system somewhere in the plane of spin and top heaviness, and you'll see a transient behavior for a while till it settles down to its ultimate attractor. Let's see what that looks like. Now, if you want, you can watch the dot moving around in one direction. See, it keeps going the same way. You could look down at the yellow time series. There's something wiggling sort of showing damped oscillations. But the best thing to look at is this blue trajectory in state space. Look at how it has started to spiral in onto a single point. Let me pause the system right there. What does that single point represent? That point is the attractor. In other words, this system has been attracted to that point in, in its state space, meaning it has settled into a behavior with a certain constant amount of top heaviness, and a certain amount of spin. And that's why the spin time series has gone flat. It has, the system has now found the spin that it wants to have. So this was the simplest possible kind of attractor, an attractor point. Attractors are very important, and we'll be discussing them throughout the rest of this course. An attractor represents a system's natural long-term mode of behavior, if you nudge a system off of its attractor by disturbing it slightly in some way, it will soon head back, determined to get back to that attractor. For example, think in your own body. If somebody were to startle you right now, boo, maybe your heart rate would go up for a second while you're scared. But soon it will come back to its natural rhythm, to its natural rate. It will quickly relax back to its attractor. Your heart, like many other systems in nature, is carefully regulated to keep its behavior within certain limits. And that's what attractors represent in their simplest form when they're just an attracting point. Now, if an unchanging steady state is represented by an attracting point, then what would a periodic state look like? That is, when we saw the water wheel rocking back and forth, what would that look like in state space? Well, think about that. If it goes back and forth through the same sequence of states, always repeating its behavior, that means that in state space, you will repeat to the same state. You will form a loop. So the answer is we should see an attracting cycle, a loop corresponding to a periodic motion. Let's see about that. So now in this next simulation, I'll set, it's as if I set the brake 
to be in the regime where now we're expecting periodic reversals. Again, we start the system somewhere, does something kind of wild in a transient way till it finds its way onto the attractor. Now I have a button on this program that allows me to clear the transients, to sort of get rid of this initial garbage till the system has found its way onto the attractor. So I'm gonna do that. You can sort of see that it has settled down already, right? I mean, this point in this terms of the simulation, the animated point is just rocking back and forth. Down here in the time series, that has settled into a periodic oscillation. And up here in state space, the most unfamiliar, if I clear the transients, I can now see that the system has settled onto a loop. Beautiful. And it'll just keep repeating going around and around on that loop, the attracting cycle. So these simple kinds of attractors, a point or a loop, they have very familiar geometry, just a point or basically a circle. And Poincaré had mastered them already 70 years earlier. What, what Lorenz was now trying to do was to visualize the attractor corresponding to a chaotic state. Poincaré had not done that. And Lorenz's attractor, we'll see, has such weird geometry that it deserves the name Strange Attractor. So let's spend the rest of our time trying a few different ways to get a grasp of what a strange attractor really is. Let me begin with a computer simulation like we've just been doing. Now I'm going to set the equivalent of the brake on my water wheel to a place where I expect to see chaotic reversals. And you can check that by watching the little dot moving in the animation. But what will the trajectory look like in state space? That's the question. So let's start and prepare yourself for a twist, a twist almost out of the twilight zone. It's spooky what you're going to see. Watch this. Well, so we see the animation just doing its thing. Uh, the, there seems to be some sort of outward spiral here in the state space, a growing spiral. Meanwhile, you can see growing oscillations down here in the time series. Now, you may be wondering, why do I say the twilight zone? But soon you'll see something eerie appearing in state space. Let me clear the transients to try to make it a little more visible what's happening. So we'll see a growing spiral that will soon form a wing. It will look like a butterfly wing. That's the twist. That is the strange attractor for the Lorenz system. Remember Lorenz, the discoverer of the butterfly effect. He is finding a strange attractor that looks like a pair of butterfly wings. Crazy. What happens is the trajectory makes a few loops around each wing before it darts over to the other wing and it jumps back and forth between them erratically each time the water wheel reverses its direction. Well, here's another way to think about what's happening. I have a three-dimensional plastic model of the Lorenz attractor. This was made by my students as a gift. Actually, I love this gift. And uh, it's made with a pretty fancy machine called a three-dimensional printer. It takes plastic and can extrude it and make any three-dimensional shape that you program into the computer. So this thing I'm showing you here is numerically accurate to the resolution of the machine. This is really what the Lorenz attractor looks like 
And maybe now you can get a feeling for what it looks like in three dimensions. That is, I can show you, for instance, that it has a kind of, it looks like a pair of surfaces joined together at a hinge. Well, Lorenz noticed that in his computer simulations, and he noticed, by thinking about it abstractly, that there was something crazy about this picture, something really wrong about that hinge. That is, he knew on abstract grounds, these surfaces cannot join at a hinge. That's impossible. Why is that impossible? Think about what these surfaces represent. They're filled with trajectories. A trajectory is supposed to show you the evolving state of the system in its state space. So if the two surfaces ever joined, that would mean that there would be two different pasts that led to the same present. And that's impossible in a deterministic system because in a deterministic system like this one, you can imagine running the movie backwards. And that would say that the past could go running time backwards into two different futures. That's impossible in a deterministic system. That is, it's deterministic both into the future and into the past. There's a unique past that brings us to today, and there's a unique future that follows from today. So when he saw them joining at this hinge, these trajectories apparently joining at the hinge, he said, that's impossible. They must be coming close, but barely missing. And so where it looks like two surfaces coming close together, they're not actually hitting, they're just coming close. It's almost like the sheets of mica. You know, if you look at a, a rock, mica, made of many sheets, it's sort of like these sheets have come together, but they're, they're separated. And so where it looks like there are two of them, they don't actually join. And so following them around on the eyes of the wings, those two surfaces, Lorenz concluded, have to come back and actually have a near encounter again, meaning that there's really four surfaces. And the four have to make eight, and the eight have to make 16. And from this kind of reasoning, he concluded that there actually have to be an infinite number of sheets, an infinite number of surfaces. He called it an infinite complex of surfaces, all joined together in some unbelievably intricate way that we can't visualize easily to form the Lorenz strange attractor. Well, this mind-boggling idea may, may bother you. It bothers Lorenz. It bothers everybody when they first encounter it. And let me try to make it a little more vivid for you and maybe... I don't know, more understandable, but I'm going to try through a pretty strange metaphor in keeping with the Twilight Zone theme here. Think about a parking garage. Actually, think of it as being a parking, you know, the kind where there are many levels. Those many levels are going to represent the many sheets of the Lorenz attractor. And to keep with the sort of two wings, let's think about two towers in this parking garage. There are the two towers. You it's an interesting garage in that you don't drive. You just get in your car and some kind of towing apparatus drags you out of the garage. The, the towing apparatus is to mimic the idea of determinism, that you don't have any choice how you're going to drive. This apparatus just drags your car out. Meanwhile, maybe your friend is also there and has parked in the car right next to yours. And... Um, so there you are. Your friend is supposed to represent a nearby initial condition. I want to illustrate what the butterfly effect would look like on the Lorenz attractor. So here you are. You get in your car. Your friend gets in his or her car. And then the device starts pulling you through the Lorenz attractor, through the parking garage. What would happen is at first it's fun. You're both swirling around, going from level to level, and you're waving to each other. You're having a good time. But soon the butterfly effect makes you di diverge from each other. Your friend is off on another lobe of the attractor, 
and now you're just not together anymore. You've exponentially separated. Meanwhile, the ride is not starting to seem as much fun anymore because you can't get out. You don't get out of the garage. You're stuck on the attractor. So you go around, then you shoot over to there. You're getting car sick, and you just keep going from level to level, never ending. So what I'm trying to show you with this analogy is that the strange attractor has four things that I want you to keep in mind. First, the determinism of the motion. You have no choice as to your future. The towing apparatus dictates everything. In the case of the real Lorenz system, the differential equation is dictating how it moves from state to state. It's non-periodic. You never come back to your initial parking space. You're confined to the strange attractor. That's the third point. You can't get out of this garage. And fourth, there's a kind of extreme sensitivity to initial conditions in that no matter how close your friend starts to you, you may stay together for a while, but soon you will have totally different fates. That's what chaos is like on a strange attractor. Well, why are strange attractors so important? We've spent pretty much this whole lecture on them. Well, because they teach us something unexpected, that chaos, despite what the name sounds like, chaos is not the absence of order. It's a marvelous, subtle state that's poised between order on the one hand and randomness on the other, with both aspects intermingled. That is, when I speak about the order here, I'm talking about the fact that in state space, we could have seen just the trajectories make a snarl like a, uh, a ball of yarn. You know, it could have been a thicket, something like that, but we didn't. We saw this butterfly shape emerge. That, that's a kind of order in the system. In fact, you could think of it as a cumulative kind of order. It's what the system does after a long time. We saw that the butterfly pattern didn't emerge immediately. It had to, we had to let the system run for a long time before the tracing showed us, before it revealed and exposed these butterfly wings. So there's a cumulative order in a chaotic system, a kind of pattern in the chaos. But on the other hand, there's a kind of randomness too. There's the butterfly effect and the, uh, the fact that tiny differences get amplified as time goes on, exponentially fast, leading to the impossibility of prediction, predicting what this system will do far into the future. So it's that confusing interplay of order and chaos, really order and randomness, I should say, that this strange attractor embodies. It's got it all in there. Well, in this lecture, we've been focusing on the abstract shape of chaos. Next time, we'll be looking at the structure of chaos in time, as opposed to its shape in state space. We'll think about what chaos means from moment to moment, and we'll see that there's beautiful order in that as well. That is, there's a lot when I say yin and yang, there is a lot of yin and a lot of yang. We're going to see plenty of order in, the, in strange attractors. Well, all of this will come back to great effect later in the course, when we'll see how the order in chaos is allowing it to be used. That is, we no longer have to avoid chaos, as engineers have traditionally been taught to do, and scientists as well. We can actually use chaos and harness its remarkable properties for all kinds of extraordinary applications in medicine, potentially in the control of arrhythmias, in dealing with epileptic seizures, in space travel, how to get to the moon without using very much fuel, practically no fuel at all, and in communications technology, in encryption. Suppose you want to send a private message. Can we use chaos to give us some secrecy? Well, it turns out we can because chaos sounds 
like noise. We can use it to cloak a message. So all of these things come about as a result of this marvelous state, chaos, which we now understand at least something about as an ordered state, not a purely random one. So I will tell you more about that next time, and I look forward to it.